Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Um, good morning to everybody. We have uh, Dr. Aaron Katz here today with us. Um, we're very grateful and, and uh, thankful to have him. He's the chairman of urology at NYU Winthrop Hospital. Um, and uh, Dr. Katz, thanks for being with us. Um, before we get started, I was wondering if, um, you know, we don't get a, a ton of chairman uh, speaking on here. I was wondering if you could give some advice to people on, um, you know, if they're interested in eventually becoming leaders of a department or uh, taking on more administrative leadership type roles, any advice for people on what they need to do early in their career to get to that point? Yeah, it's an interesting question uh, because, you know, I like, all of us went through you know, college, medical school, then, then residency, and didn't really have much training in administration and had to kind of learn on the fly, so to speak, when I came over here uh, to, to Winthrop. It's now NYU Winthrop, we were brought up by NYU a couple of years ago. But um, most of us, including myself, haven't had training. So I would say, first of all, get involved. Uh, in committees, which is very important. Learn how to function on a committee. And what I mean is, you know, rather than just um, sitting back, learn how to engage, learn how to engage others uh, on a committee, um, take action on a committee. Uh, that, that will help you to raise your level and uh, your, your confidence and your experience in, in a leadership role. Also, um, something that I didn't do and I wish I did is to take some courses. And now everything is done online. So what a great opportunity now to, to take one of the courses. I know Harvard Business School offers them and, and other you know, universities do as well in terms of leadership skills for, for physicians. And whether or not you decide to you know, stay in academia or not, if you run a private practice uh, as well, um, I think it, it's important. So it's something that I would certainly uh, encourage. But I think the bottom line is to, um, to, to seek opportunity and, and to get involved and, uh, and, and put your toe in the water. And if it doesn't work out for you, um, and you don't want to, that's not for you. And you just want to maybe to stay in private practice and um, that's fine. But um, that's what I would do. Excellent. And I've done that. And uh, I will say I've been here seven years now since I, I or eight years since I left Columbia, which was uh, had an extraordinary uh, time at Columbia. And I took everything that I had learned from my experience at Columbia and brought it here to, to Winthrop and, and built up the department here as best as I could. So I want to thank all my colleagues that are listening on the on the line that uh, helped me and are our mentors. And I think about them daily. So and thank you for the opportunity. And I've listened almost every morning to these lectures, actually, and uh, they've just been terrific. And thank you for doing this. It's, it's a terrific thing. I was thinking this morning on my way over that perhaps the resident should do this next time, you know? Maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe not a full hour. It's a lot, a full hour, but maybe like a, a half hour and have the residents uh, rotate around. Uh, it, I, would, I would love to hear the resident talks. Absolutely. It's, it's definitely something we'll have to consider. Um, well, thank you so much. Thanks for being here. And uh, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. Well, it's a great opportunity. Uh, this is an area of medicine that I've been very interested in, which is how to evaluate men, how to manage men who have had a recurrent cancer after radiation therapy. For this particular talk, I have nothing financially to disclose. Uh, and uh, the goals of today's lecture are several. One is that I will discuss with you how to evaluate men with a rise in PSA after different forms of radiotherapy. And you've had some great talks already by Nelson Stone and Dr. Deutsch at Columbia who've talked about different forms of radiotherapy. I'll talk a little bit about PSA kinetics and some of the imaging modalities that I think that are very important that you should strongly consider when evaluating men with a biochemical recurrence after radiotherapy. And then I'll discuss the NCCN guidelines that are available. And then I'm going to discuss with you the, the current treatment options that we have today, whether it be surgical, surgical options, minimally invasive options, ablative options. I'll go through the risks, the benefits, the oncological efficacy. And then at the end, hopefully I have some time, I'd like to introduce kind of a, a new topic that um, I think is emerging. It shows great promise and something that we didn't think about in the past for prostate cancer, which is focal ablation, 
rather than uh, treating the entire gland, especially I think can be uh, great for patients that have had a radiation recurrent disease. Now you've had talks with uh, Nelson Stone who talked about uh, the types of internal uh, radiotherapy. Just wanted to review for everyone. There's basically two types of internal uh, radiotherapy. One on the left is the low-dose brachytherapy. These are the typical, the seed implants. Uh, when I was at Columbia, I certainly did a lot of these with uh, Dr. Ron Ennis. Uh, we were doing these as urologists. They're, um, they're not so much fun to do for us. So you, you place the seeds and then the radiation oncologist places the seeds. Uh, and then at the end, you do a cystoscopy and see if there are any seeds in the bladder. These patients for low risk and low intermediate risk can do quite well uh, if the disease is completely confined to the prostate oncologically. They can develop some urinary and urethral irritability from the seeds. And uh, has, as Dr. Nelson Stone had pointed out, there are basically two types of uh, seeds that we use. The iodine-125, which has a half-life of 60 days, longer half-life, slower emission, typically better used for the lower grade cancers, the Gleason 6s, uh, they do well with the iodine. And the palladium is typically used for the higher risk disease where you may find that these patients may have more extra capsular extension of disease. Both of these can be used in combination with external beam. And then there's the uh, high dose brachytherapy using iridium wires. Uh, both of these, by the way, the uh, brachytherapy, low dose and the high dose are for the most part, outpatient procedures. They're both done transperineally. Uh, they're both done ultrasound guided. Uh, and the high dose uh, with iridium wires uses these implanted catheters that go into the prostate and iridium wires go through. And it can be done either once or twice. Uh, this is just an example of what it looks like. Uh, it's a very, um, you know, patients are placed up in a dorsal orthotomy position. You have a brachy style template. Uh, and the seeds are placed uh, by transrectal uh, ultrasound. And on the right, you see the dosimetry. And the idea here, of course, is to try to cover the gland completely without uh, giving an extraordinarily high dose to the urethra. But again, unfortunately, many of these patients, uh, at least that I had seen in the past, did develop some urethral irritability, which, which can be difficult to manage with um, you know, alpha blockers. You want to try to avoid uh, doing a, a TUR on these patients that have had an implant. And then the external beam radiotherapy, there's different forms. There are a few centers around the country that offer a uh, proton beam. Uh, there's uh, IMRT, which is typically still 45 days, uh, which again is done with a CT guidance and allowing you to direct the uh, radioactive beams uh, towards the prostate and hopefully sparing the uh, bladder and, and the rectum. Uh, and then the newer kind of form that's taken off, and I know Dr. Deutsch gave a great talk on this uh, a couple of weeks ago, SBRT, which is hypofractionated. And now we have at our institution at, at Winthrop, we're using a modality called CyberKnife. I tell patients there's no knife in the, this is not surgery, this is radio, radiation. It's five days outpatient. So it's only five days given at 35 and a half gray per session. Um, whether or not one of these modalities is better than the other in terms of oncological efficacy is still unknown. There hasn't been any real randomized trial, nor do I think that there will be comparing these modalities. But on the patient comfort side, and perhaps especially during this pandemic, uh, the hypofractionated five days does make a lot of sense. We've treated about 4,000 patients here at our center with a CyberKnife. Uh, and for low to low intermediate risk patients, these patients do extremely well uh, with overall minimal toxicity. Now, in the United States, national trends, uh, we're seeing uh, probably a, a, a shift now because many of these patients that are diagnosed with prostate cancer, especially early stage, low risk, are going on to expectant management, active surveillance. I have a program here at our center called Active Holistic Surveillance, where we monitor patients with, with diet uh, and exercise and monitor them with PSA and MRIs. But overall, you still see here on the top slide here an, an A that about half of the patients overall will get surgery and half will get radiotherapy. Uh, as you go to the higher risk patients, though, surgery seems to take on a little bit more, about 45%. Most of the surgeries, as you know, are being done robotically. 
Uh, a third of the patients will get radiotherapy. And for the higher risk patients, the type of radiation that they're receiving is typically uh, external beam. The number of patients that are getting seed implants with high risk is very low. And, and that's because the seed implants only take care of disease that's in the gland. And if you have high risk disease, you're more likely to have disease outside the prostate. So that's why uh, these patients really need some form of combined therapy, especially for the high risk group. Uh, this paper was published uh, by Cornell uh, this year in JAMA, looking at the National Cancer Database, showing that of 100,000 men that had diagnosed with prostate cancer between 2010 and 2015, looking at the number of patients that underwent SBRT, what you can see here is that the, uh, it really has starting to increase from 3% up to 7.5%. And so what we're seeing is is that um, although it accounted for less than half of the patients, or less than 10% of the patients undergoing radiotherapy, uh, it did double. And I will tell you that you're gonna see a significant rise in this form of treatment as other academic centers are now doing, uh, SB, uh, offering SBRT to patients. So I just want you to, uh, to be aware of this. This is uh, Dr. Zalewski's data. Uh, that was published uh, last year. And I show you this because if you look at these slides, and this is done at an academic center of excellence and with radiotherapy, followed out for long periods of time, Kaplan-Meier curves projected out over 10 years here. You see, just take a look at the, the blue line here, which is the low risk group, that even in the low risk patients, the, the PSA relapses can start to increase as we follow these patients. In my own experience, I've seen a lot of these patients now that are out from radiotherapy that had what was considered to be low risk disease, that if you follow them, they will start to have a biochemical uh, recurrence. And uh, that is probably true as well with, with other forms of therapy. I don't think it's as true with radical prostatectomy, I will say, but we see it here for the intermediate risk patients and for the higher risk patients, this Kaplan-Meier curve drops down the number of patients that start to uh, relapse is increasing. The concern here, especially for patients, is that the likelihood of developing metastasis is high, especially if you don't do anything for these patients. If you observe them, even in the lower risk patients, you're seeing that some of these patients are now progressing to uh, metastatic disease, disease in the lymph node or the bone, uh, in the low, the intermediate, and especially in the high risk. So we have to be very careful uh, when monitoring these patients. And that's one of the key points that I want to bring out with you uh, this morning. Uh, this was uh, published uh, recently in, in JAMA Oncology. This is the RTOG 126 randomized clinical trial, randomizing patients to two different forms of doses, whether or not they fail by the ASTRO or the Phoenix criteria, which I'll discuss the meanings in a moment. But what you see here is that, and if you increase the dose from uh, 70 to 79, the likelihood of failure by PSA will decrease. So increasing the dose seems to make sense, and we were increasing higher and higher doses over the years. However, with increasing dose, not surprisingly, what you're going to see is increasing toxicity. And you're going to see increasing bladder toxicity, urethral toxicity, and rectal toxicity with erectile bleeding and urethral irritability and bladder bleeding. Unfortunately, in the next slide, what you see here is that despite increasing the dose, we didn't see a significant change here in the overall survival in these patients at time after randomization, at least after eight years, nor did we see a difference in the time to prostate cancer uh, mortality, which is concerning. So why do patients fail radiation therapy? And I will tell you that if you are in urology and you're for a significant amount of time, like I have been, you will see a number of these patients. If you're dealing with prostate cancer in your practice, you'll see them in the clinic. The question is, why do they fail radiotherapy? It could be that they received an inadequate dose. Uh, and, and again, a lot of studies are showing that higher doses do seem to eradicate tumors. It could be that the tumors initially that were present were eradicated, but that new tumors now have formed in the prostate. And many of these patients may have underlying genetic defects. They may have somatic mutations. They may have 
certain oncogenes that are uh, expressed or uh, BRCA1, BRCA2. We're finding out a lot about these mutations now that may allow uh, uh, new tumors to form and there could be some radio resistance where these tumors just don't die or maybe new tumors form. It could also be that the patients were understaged. I can't tell you how many times I've seen patients when I look back at their initial diagnosis and they had a PSA of 50, a Gleason 8. Yeah, they had a bone scan, they had a CAT scan, it was clean. They didn't have any sampling of their lymph nodes. They didn't have any sampling of their seminal vesicles. And so they were understaged. And so that can certainly be a cause for biochemical failure. What we know about biochemical failure, the known predictors, your initial PSA is going to be key, the Gleason score and clinical stage, all of these, of course, go into the risk stratification, the higher risk, the higher chance of having a PSA relapse. The other thing that uh, has come out recently uh, that I've been using is the uh, pre-radiation MRI, looking back. And uh, this study that was just published in Neurologic Oncology did show that if you had a higher PIRAD score, that would seem to be an independent uh, predictor of whether or not patients were going to fail uh, by radiotherapy. Now you could say, well, if they have a higher PIRAD score, they're more likely to have a higher Gleason score. Uh, and that's probably true. And that also uh, could be the reason why patients are, are failing. Uh, I just wanted to show you this to make sure that we're all understanding the, uh, the definitions, the proper definitions for um, radiation failure. Uh, this was the ASTRO definition. This was the initial definition that was um, defined in 1997 as three consecutive PSA rises and you should be optimally separated by three months apart. The date of the failure should be the midpoint between the PSA, between the post-radiation aid or PSA, uh, and the rises of, of PSA. So uh, this may be only important for, for clinical studies, but I put it out here that this may show up on some exam, is what is the actual astro definition of when the, when the PSA, when the patient started to fail. Um, no definition of, of PSA at this point and their consensus was a, defined as a failure. So you could have a PSA of, of five or 10 as a surrogate for a clinical progression of survival. They did find, however, that the Nader PSA is the strongest predictive value of whether or not a patient is going to recur, but no absolute PSA value was the cutoff. So at that point in time, they didn't know that if your Nader PSA was 0.5 or 1 or 2, uh, that that was going to be the absolute number for when you would fail. And I think one of the more surprising things that came out of this consensus was that they found that just because you fail by radiotherapy, by biochemical failure, that's not a justification for you to initiate additional treatment. The, uh, the, the second uh, definition that uh, came about was the Phoenix definition. And, and this definition uh, was, uh, came about 10 years later, actually. Uh, and they found that the better definition is to use Nader plus two. And this definition seemed more robust and it seemed to correlate more with the likelihood of a patient having a increased mortality. They also correlated very well to patients' progression-free survival and overall cancer-specific survival. So most of the studies that you're going to see now are going to deal with this Phoenix definition, Nader plus two. Okay. What about the optimal PSA Nader after radiation? So you're in the clinic and you're seeing these patients back and, you know, they started out with a PSA of 15 and what should their PSA go to? after radiotherapy. This is unlike radical prostatectomy, where at six weeks, your PSA should be undetectable and it should stay undetectable forever. That's considered surgical cure, not the same with radiotherapy. Okay, so your PSA is going to nadir down slowly and it's gonna nadir down. It typically can take, as you can see here from one of the studies using SBRT, it can take 18 months to 24 months for your PSA to drop uh, down to its nadir. What should the nadir value be? A lot of studies have looked at this um, and probably the best uh, 
number or, or the optimal number that you'd like to have is a PSA of less than 0.5. This particular study showed that if you dropped your nadir value to less than 0.5, your likelihood of prostate cancer death uh, was much less. Also, I have here in yellow, remember T levels, testosterone. A lot of the patients at radiotherapy are also getting androgen deprivation therapy and their PSAs can drop within three months. You give somebody a three month Lupron injection, they had a PSA of 15, you go, wow, look at this guy's PSA is, is undetectable at three months. You have to get a testosterone level every time that you get a PSA level. When you're taking care of patients after radiotherapy because you can get burned, you think, oh, this patient's doing really well. And in fact, they may not be doing well even if their PSAs are going up very slightly, but the testosterone levels may still be at castrate levels. So remember this key point when evaluating patients and look back and say, did this guy get hormonal therapy? And for how long is he still on hormonal therapy? I need a testosterone level in addition to my PSA. Some of the studies have looked at how we can use PSA as a predictor of whether or not patients will fail. And this uh, was Michael Zaleski's study over a thousand patients who were treated with external beam radiotherapy. Uh, and again, about 23%, almost a quarter of the patients had biochemical recurrence overall. And of those, 26% of these patients are gonna develop disease metastasis rel relatively shortly, within five years. Um, again, the, the predictors of disease metastasis were identified as PSA doubling time, Gleason and T-stage. And PSA doubling time is key. So if you have a PSA doubling time that's short, three to six months, the three-year incidence of disease metastasis is 41%. It's going to drop down to 20% if your doubling time is a little bit longer. So if you go to a doubling time of six months to 12 months, it's 20%. And then if you go um, for more than a year, your likelihood is, is much less. It's only 7%. So PSA doubling time can be important. And they also found, not surprisingly, and I think that this is true, and I found this in my own practice, that PSA doubling times of less than six months, more likely to have progression or metastatic disease, harboring disease outside the prostate, these patients are least likely to benefit from local salvage therapy and may be more appropriately treated with upfront systemic therapy. Uh, and what they also came up with is the patients that are most likely to benefit from local salvage therapy, and I agree with this, are those with their initial favorable presentation where they had localized disease T1 to T2, Gleason scores of six and low uh, PSAs. Uh, and if the time to biochemical failure is longer, uh, longer than three years, those patients again are more likely to benefit from salvage therapy. So the things to consider, radiation therapy, external beam, brachytherapy, still a standard option for patients with clinically localized prostate cancer. About 20 to 50% of the patients overall will develop biochemical failure within 10 years. Certainly the higher risk patients more likely to develop uh, than the lower risk patients. Uh, if you biopsy these patients, in my own experience, and this is true with many of the papers in the literature, a significant number of these patients will have recurrent cancer. So if they're failing by the ASTRO or the Phoenix definition and you biopsy them, in my own experience, about 70% of them will harbor disease in the prostate. Without further treatment, they will progress. They will have clinical symptoms. They may develop urinary retention, obstruction, hematuria, and negatively affect their quality of life. But more importantly, it could be a source that these tumor cells will de-differentiate. And I will tell you time and time again, patients come in, they had a biopsy after radiotherapy, and they're much higher risk, much higher grade, uh, and are more likely to have systemic dissemination. Despite that, when patients fail in the United States, radiotherapy biochemically, very few patients are actually offered salvage therapy. And um, most of the patients, the kind of knee-jerk response by most urologists, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, is to treat the patient with palliative intent. Either we'll just watch it, we're not going to do anything. We'll just see how your PSA is doing, or we're going to give you androgen deprivation therapy, whether it be in a continuous fashion or whether it be intermittently, which is still, I think, still up for debate, especially patients that do not have overt metastatic disease, whether or not you should give intermittent or continuous, different lecture. Uh, but certainly, 
Um, we have to be careful. And, and again, so many of these patients are just getting, uh, they're not being offered uh, salvage therapy. And a lot of that may be due to a few reasons. Well, one, advanced age. The patients that have had radiotherapy may have had radiotherapy initially because they weren't, you know, they were older. Uh, they were sicker. They had other coexisting morbidities. They weren't considered suitable candidates for radical prostatectomy. And of course, there is still concern about the potential toxicity, and we're going to get into that in a little bit, about the salvage therapies. So overall, 25% of the patients are managed with observation, 70% are managed with ADT, and fewer than 5% in this country actually undergo some form of potentially curative local salvage therapy. I just want to put this slide up again, just to reemphasize the point that if you're seeing patients in your practice, in your clinic, residents, when you see PSAs going up, they're not always from cancer. They, in my experience, if they're failing by the Astro or the Phoenix, there's a very high chance that it is, but it could be BPH. It could be that the tumors are eradicated and you still, again, have the gland and you're still going to be producing PSA. So you still could have, B, you could have BPH there. They could have metastatic disease, and I'm going to discuss that in a few moments. There is, a, there is a phenomenon known as PSA bounce phenomenon, where within the first typically two years, the PSA can then rapidly rise and then drop it down to its normal value. Often seen with brachytherapy, could be due to the uh, delayed inflammation from the seed implants, because these are permanent implants that go into the prostate, so it's possible to see a PSA bounce or you can see patients with urethral irritability from the radiation. Uh, you can see obstruction, retention, get a post-void residual in your clinic. If you see these patients that have had radiotherapy and they're having urinary symptoms, get a, get a bladder scan, easy to do. And if they're harboring residual urine, they're likely to have urinary tract infection. And what can happen? Well, the PSA can go up. So in my experience, doing this for several years now, uh, they clearly happen. They can happen early within the first 18 months, but that's rare. And if they do, be very worrisome about a progression. If ADT is used, get your PSA and T levels. Usually they can occur late, these radiotherapy failures. They can occur anywhere from 2, 10. I've seen patients coming back to my office now 15 years later uh, with, a, with a relapse from radiotherapy. And typically, their only sign is a PSA rise, but rarely, and this is another point I want to bring out uh, to all of you listening on the line, the digital rectal examination could be abnormal. And you know there are some institutions that are saying, oh, we don't need to do digital rectal exams anymore. This is a patient population where you do need to do a digital rectal because a lot of times these patients that progress locally, uh, even though their PSAs are not that high, the tumor biology changes and they may not express a lot of PSA and you can feel it quite readily on a digital exam. You can feel a new nodule, or a mass. So, um, do your digital rectal exams, especially in these patients. Be wise about the PSA in the post-radiated patient. We're going to get an image. I'll talk about some image tests and use your PSA kinetics, as, as I mentioned. Um, again, so for uh, patient selection, we're going to talk about things that you should consider. I don't think that you should consider a biopsy on a patient that had radiotherapy if you're, don't, if you're not going to consider them for salvage therapy, there's no point in biopsying them, okay? Um, so if they're older, they're sicker, they, uh, you know, look for metastatic disease, maybe you want to observe and, and, um, or, or use androgen deprivation therapy. But if uh, since you want to look at their age, their life expectancy, their comorbidities, and determine whether or not the patient is still potentially curable, how rapid is their PSA rises, what was their PSA initially? I mean, if their PSA was 50 and their Gleason score was nine, then they weren't potentially curable by radiotherapy and they're not gonna be potentially curable uh, by salvage therapy as well. Uh, we wanna differentiate a, a local recurrence from one that has a systemic spread, always look at cancer biology. So when you're evaluating these patients, back to the basics, history and physical examination, do a thorough urological history, Ask the patient after radiotherapy or before radiotherapy, did they have a TERP? Did they have a bladder neck contracture? Did they develop a urethral stricture? When evaluating these patients for salvage therapy, always obtain a baseline IPSS score. If their IPSS scores are high, consider alpha blockers, get a PVR. 
I will say that you should be very careful, even doing a green light in these patients after radiotherapy can be dangerous in terms of their likelihood of developing urinary incontinence. Even the small things that we consider are small, and you're, oh, we're gonna stay away from the sphincter. Um, it, it, it's a different patient population, and you have to understand that, especially patients nowadays that are getting high doses of radiotherapy, their sphincters are not the same as they were in the non-radiated patient. Look back at their history after radiotherapy. Did they have any rectal bleeding, any pain, diarrhea from it? Um, look at their medical illnesses, their oncological history, as I mentioned. Uh, and again, DRE is a must. So here is the NCCN guidelines. This is what you need to know uh, in terms of how to evaluate these patients. So over here, we see patients with a PSA recurrence or, as I said here, positive DRE. Look back and see if they're a candidate for local therapy. Look at their initial T stage. Again, their life expectancy, as I just said, and hopefully their PSAs are still low. Unfortunately, I see patients that come back, their PSAs are crazy high, and they're not gonna do well uh, with salvage therapy. So I'm just gonna talk now about the patients that we feel are a candidate for salvage. You wanna look at their doubling time. It says chest X-ray or chest CT. Uh, I have not typically used that, but I have used in the past bone scan uh, and CT scan that's typically what I would do first. I'm gonna go into some of the newer uh, scans, but uh, certainly you wanna image these uh, patients and determine whether or not they have metastatic disease before you do biopsy. Because if they have overt metastatic disease, there's no point at this point in, in, in offering the patient a biopsy. Uh, the fluciclovine, uh, the, the, the choline, and the uh, PSMA scan are available in some centers. I'll talk about it in a moment. I think that these are very key. If the, then you will go ahead, if these, if these scans are negative, you'll go ahead and do your uh, ultrasound-guided prostate biopsy. And if there's negative for distant metastasis, then you've got your options, which I'm gonna talk about, either observation, radical prostatectomy in a salvage setting, salvage cryotherapy, salvage HIFU, salvage brachytherapy um, are the, the standard ones right now. If the patient has a biopsy that's negative, that gets a little tricky because now you've got a patient with a rising PSA, negative metastatic evaluation, and a biopsy that shows no cancer. It's not always so easy. So typically what they're recommending is to either observe uh, or to use androgen deprivation therapy. It really depends upon uh, the, the patient um, and their PSA kinetics. Biopsy interpretation is difficult. Uh, it's, uh, again, it, it could take a number of months, sometimes up to two to three years for the resolution of these prostate cancer cells to be eradicated. So don't biopsy too quickly because some of the studies have shown that a third of the biopsies showing tumor at a year will actually become negative um, at 24 to 30 months. Some of these ghost cells that radiation oncologists talk about, um, there's a scarcity of glandular formation. Typically, they're not assigned a Gleason, although I do see many of the pathology reports coming back with a, a Gleason that's assigned to them, but the classic Gleason grading system was not for, supposed to be used in the post-radiated uh, setting, um, although it can be used if there is residual uh, tumor there. Uh, and this is what it looks like uh, histologically. You can see here the scarcity of cells uh, on the lower right hand, you see some, I'm sorry, in the lower left hand, you see some benign glands. Uh, and on the top right middle here, you're starting to see some abnormal cells here. And by racemase staining, you need to do some additional staining here and rely on your pathologist, because again, these are not easy biopsies to interpret. Uh, you can see um, absence of basal cells uh, and the uh, strong immunoreactivity for racemase, this red staining up here uh, showing a recurrent cancer. MRI is, we're using a lot of MRIs obviously for detecting prostate cancer, using it in our fusion biopsies. It can be very um, attractive to help for focal therapy. Uh, for the most part, um, you know, the uh, PIRAD system has not been used uh, in, in the classic setting in patients that have had radiation, um, although it does well for the detection uh, if you, in the unradiated patient. But in the radiated patient, you have to be careful. The gland becomes atrophic. It becomes fibrotic after radi radiotherapy. There's not that standard, you know, classic definition between the transition zone and the peripheral zone. And so it can be helpful but if the patient has a rising PSA and you feel they're a good candidate for uh, salvage therapy, 
biopsy them. I personally have found where MRI looks clean as a whistle and the patient has high grade recurrent disease. Uh, so they can have significant disease there. So don't always rely on, on your MRI. Here's an MRI of a patient that was evaluated 76 years old that had uh, a rising PSA after radiotherapy. Uh, he's got an abnormal area here on the T2 weighted image uh, showing some abnormal capsular uh, involvement. Uh, and again, on the uh, diffusion-weighted image here, uh, you can see the area quite nicely, and the patient had a biopsy and showed at least an eight cancer. Now, there's some new scans that you need to be aware of, and some of them are not uh, FDA-approved yet, but they're on the rise, and one of them that's taken off that I have seen in the literature that I'm very excited about is the PSMA PET scan. And the PSMA is prostate-specific membrane antigen. It's a membrane glycoprotein. It has an extracellular, a transmane membrane, and an intracellular component. And for the older urologists that are listening on the, uh, on the channel this morning, uh, if you remember the old indium-labeled uh, prostacin scan that we were using to detect uh, disease where it spread outside the prostate, that was labeled, an indium labeled to the intracellular component of the PSMA. And we were really only detecting cells that were probably dead. Uh, and so that's how the antibody could detect that. Uh, but uh, nowadays we have the, the newer PSMA, the gallium PSMA PET scan that has great tumor penetration and uh, detects the extracellular component uh, of the PSMA. I will let you know also that although it's prostate-specific membrane antigen, other tumors can express PSMA. Uh, renal cell cancers can, in, in the urological uh, literature, you, you can see PSMA expressed there. But uh, castrate-resistant disease is high expression of PSMA, uh, as well as high-grade tumors. Uh, and uh, there's been a lot of studies looking at this. UCLA probably has done a, probably the most work in PSMA, as well as UCSF and showing that overall the detection rate is quite good, about 60% or so with patients that have very low levels of PSA between 0.2 and 0.5. So know about PSMA, this is what the scan looks like. It's very easy to read. And um, I would encourage you as well as residents to make sure that you go down to the radiology uh, and, and the nuclear medicine and actually look at these scans. But this one is much easier to read than the, than the Aximan scan, which I'll talk about in a moment. But as you see here, this is normal. Uh, you see some areas of uh, disease in the right ilium. Uh, here you can see disease in the, in the lymph nodes and then as well as in the bone by these PSMAs. And so by getting this kind of newer generation scan, you don't need to get the CAT scan and the bone scan because the PSMA and uh, scan can really detect both uh, soft tissue and disease in the, uh, in, in the bone. And again, as I said, it's, it's, it's easier to read uh, than the, uh, the, the, the Aximan scan. The detection rate is going to improve as your PSA levels go up, 73% between 0.5 and 1, but again, 97% of, of the patients will have a detection outside the prostate with, uh, or in the prostate, but some level uh, of detection uh, with a PSA over 2. The other scan that is FDA approved that's widely available now, because it was approved back in May of 2016, is the Flucyclovine, took me a while to actually say that, Flucyclovine study, the Aximan scan, which is a uh, amino acid analog, leucine amino acid. Again, can detect bony and soft tissue lesions, has high detection rates as the PSAs go up. It has to be injected right when the patient's lying on the scanner because it's rapidly taken up by prostate cells. But unfortunately, I guess like the PSMA, it's not specific to, can to prostate cancer. It can be picked up with BPH, inflammation, and also other malignancies like lung. We've actually picked up a few lung cancers here with uh, the Aximan scan. Uh, this is an example of a patient, again, that had radiotherapy, uh, biochemical recurrence, was not found to be detected on either CT or MRI. It was equivocal. And here you see a nice hot spot. Uh, this is obviously the very nice example that I'm showing you here. They don't always, I've looked at a lot of these scans, they're not always so clear as this one, but this one lights up very nicely and I wanted to show you that. The other uh, scan that is available in a few centers, 
uh, around the country is the choline PET scan. And this one was really uh, best for looking at nodal disease. It's based upon the increased concentration of the phosphorylcholine, which is upregulated in prostate cancer, especially in biochemical disease. Overall detection rates around 66%. Uh, and for patients that have low PSAs, around 45% are positive. Um, so it's something that um, I think you should know about. It's not, avail it's not as available as the Aximin. And from what I've seen with the PSMA, I, I think that the PSMA scan is going to um, take, the, take the lead here. And interestingly, one of the other things about the PSMA is that it may be tagged to a beta emitter, which may be used to treat prostate cancer uh, in patients that have a relapsed or recurrent castrate-resistant disease. So I know some, some centers are looking at that. Documentation for patients with rising PSA, this is what you wanna make sure you document. When did they have the radiation, what type, where was it performed, the dose that they received, whether or not they got hormones or not, look at your risk category and whether or not the patient had TUR. These are all important that you should document in the chart, especially the dose uh, and, and where it was performed. After radiotherapy, know what their nadir was, know what their doubling time is, see if they had toxicity, did they have a TUR, did they need a TUR, did they develop stricture, what their most recent PSA is, are they still on hormones, or something else that can reduce PSA, obviously, finasteride, dutasteride, what are their comorbidities, always get a shim and an IPSS score, do your imaging and biopsy. So I want to talk about some of the options for patients that have had recurrent disease in the salvage setting, the non-curative and the potentially curative, right? So it's always potentially. But the non-curative options, either surveillance or hormonal therapy, the potential curative, salvage radical, salvage brachy, salvage hyphu, salvage cryo, which I've had a lot of experience doing and started out at Columbia doing a lot of these cases and still do. And another uh, type of treatment, which is just coming on the uh, horizon now, irreversible electroporation. Salvage radical prostatectomy, challenging cases. I know that residents love to do robotics and love to do you know, radical prostatectomies. When I was at Columbia, Dr. Olson and Dr. Benson, we did all these cases open. They were great fun. And I'm sure robotics is great fun in the primary setting. These are not always so much fun. These are tough. And these set cases, the, the prostate can be stuck down onto the rectum. The apex of the gland can be stuck right down onto the onto the anterior rectal wall. The most frequent complications here are going to be bladder neck contractures. And look at this, urethral anastomosis. And this is from great centers of excellence with, with, with robotic surgeons that have a lot of skill, 15% disruption. Rectal injuries, not small, 5 to 10%. And if you have one of these, they're not fun to take care of because they can develop a rectal fistula. They can develop into an abscess. Uh, so certainly the complication rates are understandably much higher in the salvage setting uh, than in the, in the primary setting. And in the long term, urinary incontinence rates, you know, these patients that develop urinary incontinence, it's difficult because uh, they're not going to respond well to Kegels. They're not going to respond well uh, as much to, to medical therapy, and they're going to need uh, an artificial sphincter. And I know some surgeons are actually putting in sphincters at the time when they do these salvage cases. The SEER database study was reported to show that uh, clearly perioperative complications, length of stay, hospital readmissions are all much higher in the SEER database than with a, than with a primary radical prostatectomy. And there was a study that came out recently from the National Cancer Database that showed that if you're gonna have this type of a procedure, probably best to have it at an academic facility where your risk of prolonged hospitalization is less. Overall, patients can do reasonably well. I mean, listen, these are not the biochemical relapse survival rates that you'd see with the primary setting, 37 to 65%. They're not great, they're, they're okay, but they're, they're not what you expect in the primary series. 10-year cancer-specific survival rates, 65 to 83%. Um, and uh, again, the, the advantage of doing these robotically is that you can get a better tissue plane, and there has been studies showing reduced blood loss. So uh, again, proceed with caution here. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of these cases had T3A disease. Uh, so these are much higher grade, more likely to have extra capsular extension, more bilateral tumors than in the primary setting. A lot of these patients have disease that's close to the urethra, 
And many of these patients, almost half of them were high grade, Gleason 8 or more. In terms of giving the patient additional radiotherapy, there have been some studies. I just want to be complete and show you that there are some patients that received an inadequate dose. That's why dose is important and can get salvage brachytherapy, perhaps in a focal manner where you see some area there. To me, it seems a little bit counterintuitive to give more radiation to a possibly radiation recurrent tumor, but there are some studies that looked. I-125 is most commonly used. Uh, and again, uh, you have to um, be very concerned about uh, side effects. Biochemical relapse and survival rates are not so great, 50%. However, patients um, that have been on hormones for a significant amount of time, not surprisingly, those patients are going to develop castrate-resistant disease. If the PSAs are above five, they're not going to do um, as well. If you're going to consider doing this, and I know that I think it was Dr. Deutsch mentioned about the spaceor, which can be placed uh, transperineally, and a, it, which is a hydrogel that can be placed in between the prostate and the rectum to try and uh, reduce uh, the toxicity there. So uh, that, that can happen. But you can see delayed onset of, uh, of rectal and urinary toxicities with these patients. And uh, again, some of these patients that have had salvage brachytherapy have had diverting colostomies. So again, have to be careful. The other form of uh, brachytherapy uh, that's being used in terms of giving additional uh, radiotherapy is the HDR, the iridium-192, uh, iridium wires. Uh, however, there's a few studies that have looked at this, but uh, they, they don't seem to be all that great. And then there's um, a, a form of therapy that has taken off in Europe quite a bit. And now here in the United States, it, it has received FDA approval for the ablation of prostate tissue. That's high intensity focused ultrasound. Ultrasound guided procedure a ultrasound uh, probe gets placed into the rectum, and then you're directing these um, ultrasound waves. Heat energy is being delivered, almost like if you would take a magnifying glass and you're taking the, the, uh, the sun, the rays of the sun, and directing it onto a blade of grass to heat up that, that blade of grass. Same thing here. You're taking these high-intensity ultrasound waves and focusing it onto the area of the prostate recurrence it's typically done outpatient and it can be done focally. And I will tell you anecdotally, I've seen patients that had whole gland HIFU. These patients can be quite miserable. They do need a TUR, they need a suprapubic tube for an extended period of time. The patients that have focal uh, HIFU can do much better in terms of their toxicity. Here I show you two planning schemes. And basically what you do is you run the ultrasound through the prostate on different sections, uh, and you can direct these ultrasound waves to different regions of the prostate, and you can watch the prostate heat up. It gives you this popcorn effect. You see like a hyperechoic uh, area where the tissue becomes uh, ablated. Uh, this is a study that looked at, at HIFU for recurrent cancers, uh, 418 patients out of Europe, uh, and what they found, they used the Phoenix definition for failure here. Uh, overall, prostate biopsies were reported in 60%. Negative biopsy rate was pretty good at 74%. Biochemical-free survival, 49%. Incontinence rates are higher, 19%. Fistula rates, a little bit under 1%. The other thing that HIFU allows you to do um, is, as some of the other modalities I'll talk about in a moment, is focused uh, ultrasound in the area where you can do focal ablation. So if you have a cancer, the MRI shows that there's an area here, you biopsy it, and you wanna consider doing just a focal ablation, stay away from the urethra. You can do that uh, with HIFU. And I know some of the centers here in New York are doing it with, with very good results. And I look forward to hearing more about that. This was a uh, paper that was recently published by Mark Emberton. He's probably done the most work on HIFU in, in Europe. It was published in BJU a couple of years ago in 150 patients, showing that about half of the patients experience biochemical uh, failure. If you look here, you'll see that the PSA on the lower uh, right-hand side here, if you're looking at your PSA nadir, you, again, you want your PSA nadir to go below 0.5. Unfortunately, 40% of the patients still needed systemic therapy. 
complications included bladder neck stricture and uh, fistula as well in uh, some of the patients. About 78% were pad-free, so about 20% of these patients still uh, are incontinent. And then the last few slides, I just want to talk about something that I've been very interested in and have done quite a bit of, which is cryotherapy using cold technology. This is a controlled freezing of the prostate gland, just like HIFU. It's done outpatient, so there's no hospitalization. Uh, there is the ability as well with cryo to do both total and focal cryotherapy. Uh, you introduce these cryo needles or cryo probes into the prostate under ultrasound guidance. The procedure typically will take you about an hour and 20 minutes. It can be done under local, uh, sorry, under, under spinal or under uh, LMA. You initially would place a Foley catheter. You do your ultrasound. There are needles or cryo probes that go into the prostate and you also insert thermocouples. This is a little different than HIFU in that you can actually measure the temperature in and around the area of the tumor. You then perform a flexible cystoscopy to make sure that there's no inadvertent injury, that the needles didn't go into the urethra or the bladder. And you insert under cystoscopic guidance a temperature probe in the external sphincter. That's key so that you can measure the temperature in the sphincter during uh, freezing and making sure that your sphincter temperature stays warm. You have a urethral warmer that goes in to protect the urethra. You always do a double freeze-thaw cycle. Patient goes to the recovery room and then patient goes home. Whole procedure takes about an hour and 20 minutes. There are two commercially available systems in the United States that make these devices. One is called uh, Endocare or Healthtronics and they basically have a, a probe that has a variable probe that can uh, allow you to change the length of the ice ball. The other system employ, and this is a 2.4 millimeter probe. The other one is a 17 gauge ice rod from Galil Medical. And both systems employ argon to freeze and kill cancer. And this is an example of what the ice ball looks like outside of the patient. And this is a schematic of the prostate and the transverse view, just showing that you, for the typical prostate, you put in maybe six to eight of these, just making sure that each of the needles stay relatively close to each other, less than two centimeters and a good distance uh, off the rectum, about a half a centimeter off the rectum, especially in the radiated patient. You wanna make sure that your needles and probes aren't too close to the, uh, to the rectal area. This is what it looks like on the computer screen that you're watching. This is a patient that we were doing a right focal ablation in the blue. You see these are the schematics of the needles of, that are going in. These are the temperature probes. And you see here, you'd like the temperature to go. Most of the cryobiology literature will tell you to drop the temperature down in the tumor to less than 40 degrees centigrade to ensure adequate kill. Uh, this is the first cycle here showing that you've got all the temperatures down below negative 40. Uh, then you do a rapid warm up, a thaw, and then you freeze again. This green line here is the temperature in the external sphincter, and you wanna make sure that that sphincter temperature remains um, above uh, 20 degrees. If the temperature remains above 20 degrees uh, in the sphincter, your patient remains continent. Key, intra-op photo, showing the patient in the dorsal orthotic position. Again, the same for HIFU as it is for cryo. The needles go through a brachy-style template. You see your ultrasound is over here on the patient's right, and on the left, is the uh, monitor that you're watching. And a patient has a Foley, uh, the urethral warmer, and then when they, they leave the recovery room, you just take out the warmer, you put in a, um, a Foley, and the patient stays in the recovery room about an hour, and then they go home. I typically leave the catheter in for uh, typically four nights. I, tomorrow I have five cases on the books, thankfully, donning to do surgery again. Um, I'll do them on Thursday and take the catheters out on, on Monday. It's been approved. I was involved in the Medicare uh, approval process since 2001 on the primary side, as well as in the salvage side, outpatient, urology-friendly procedure. You guys know how to put needles in the kidneys, needles in the prostate, do cystoscopy. Uh, so it's, it's a friendly procedure for us to do. You only need one surgeon. There's two commercially available systems in the United States. There's a lot of literature that's been published using what's called the cryo-online database, the cold registry. Incontinence rates, for the most part, even in the salvage setting, or specifically in the salvage setting, is low. In my own experience, it's definitely less than 5%. Way less fistulas. Thankfully, in my last, I would say, 500 cases, I have not had any fistula at all. Uh, however, the downside here is that, especially if you do a total gland ablation, 
about 100% of these patients will have new onset ED. They will definitely take a hit to their SHIM score. They can recover with some, uh, some medication, Cialis, Viagra, uh, intracavernosal injections I have found to be the best for these patients or an implant. These are the ideal biopsies that you would like. They show no uh, cellular architecture whatsoever. There's, there's complete eradication of all of the cells. Um, there's just stromal and hemosiderin macrophages that you can see here and stromal fibrosis. This type of a biopsy after salvage associated with what you would like to be an undetectable or a PSA that's uh, less than 0.2 will give the patient a long-term disease-free outcome and will spare the patient. These are my uh, studies that I published. Actually, this is the data from Columbia of 328 patients that underwent salvage cryotherapy. Overall, five and 10-year disease-specific survival, 91% and 79%. And since I'm here at Winthrop, we've had patients that have had salve that needed salvage therapy after uh, stereotactic body radiotherapy. And these patients can also be uh, treated effectively there. We're now starting to do focal therapy. Uh, and this is a typical case of a 68-year-old gentleman who had a PSA of around six, who underwent radiotherapy 10 years ago. PSA doubling time was long had an MRI that showed a pyreds 4 on the left. MRI, the biopsy showed disease on the left, uh, and the biopsies on the right were negative. This is an example of what the, uh, the freezing technology looks like. This is the ice ball here. You can see it on the left. This is the edge of the ice ball here. This is the leading edge. This over here is the rectal wall. You can take the ice ball and you can bring it right down onto the rectum. That's fine. I also use, especially patients that are very concerned or would like to maintain potency. This has been quite helpful here to use this nerve sparing uh, approach with a color Doppler. Uh, MRI after, uh, this is a year out, shows uh, a complete eradication of the tumor. PSA dropped down very nicely to 0.4. Repeat biopsy was negative. Shim remains quite good at a 24. So uh, he's had an excellent uh, result there. Fully catheter just for four nights. We give some antibiotics for a few days, alpha blocker typically for 30 days. And then follow-up period, patients should get after an ablation, whether or not they get HIFU or cryo, um, they should uh, get a PSA every three months, at least in the first year, and then every three months uh, for, for the first two years, then every six months thereafter. I enter all these patients to our database. They all get IPSS and SHIM scores uh, and biopsy based upon their PSAs. And uh, this is a, a paper that was published from the cold registry, looking at uh, the ability to offer patients um, uh, salvage therapy and for focal therapy. Uh, and here, both of these patients did very well oncologically, whether or not you used a focal or whether or not you used a total. What they did find in this study, which was published uh, out of Cleveland Clinic, was that uh, their urinary retention rate was much less with a focal. And I found that as, as well. A urinary retention after salvage can occur, not that, not that common, maybe around 5% of the patients may need an additional catheter for a week, um, but uh, focal therapy, I think, can spare the patients uh, their, their, their potency. Um, and uh, this is a, a paper that I published recently uh, showing that focal cryotherapy can also delay the use of androgen deprivation therapy. This is something that we'd like to do for patients to not only eradicate their tumor and allow them to have an excellent quality of life, but to see if we can spare them androgen deprivation therapy. And obviously, you know, as residents, you need to know all of the different morbidities that occur when testosterone levels are down with androgen deprivation therapy. So if we have a modality where we can spare them perhaps for life without using ADT, uh, I think we've done a great service uh, for our patients. So. This is, I think, why uh, patients will choose this type of a therapy. There's no, I have not found any delayed or long-term complications, no risk of malignancies, secondary malignancies. It's repeatable if need be. Incontinence rates are low, and they have a quick return to life. And in the last, I guess I have maybe a minute, mm -hmm. is uh, irreversible electroporation, which is being done in Europe and here in the United States. It's not FDA-approved yet. It uses electrical pulses and it can be used as a salvage therapy. I just put it up here so that you should know. Memorial published a paper on a case report that they did of a young gentleman who had a recurrent cancer, uh, underwent the IRE uh, and did very well. It's an outpatient procedure. Again, 
transrectal procedure, uh, placing uh, needles that go transperineally into the prostate and can result in, in undetectable PSA levels. So I just wanna leave you with some thoughts. And again, thank you very much for this opportunity. Uh, it was wonderful for me to, to, to be on the line with you and give you my thoughts. Radiation therapy uh, has undergone a major change. We're doing better with our radiotherapy as we're doing better with radical prostatectomy, but you're gonna still see cases of regional recurrences. Get your scans early. Uh, be on the lookout and look at PSMA scan. It's a very interesting scan. Right now, it's not available everywhere. Axiom and scan is. Uh, M MRIs can be helpful. They may help you, uh, but again, be wary if the patient's PSAs are going up and they're a candidate for salvage. Even if the MRIs are clear, biopsy those patients. Inform your patients about the options. Um, these options may cure them and may extend their time off androgen deprivation therapy. Salvage radical prostatectomy. Yes, it can be considered in rare cases, only in experienced hands. I think overall, the outcomes for disease-specific survival that I've seen in the literature is not, is not different between the radical prostatectomy and that of the salvage cryotherapy. And that's why I personally, in my own life and my experience and my practice, have chosen to do salvage cryo than, than salvage radical prostatectomy. And always think about the quality of life of your patients. Thank you very much for this opportunity.